this episode of the Critical Oxygen Podcast. It's only a mistake if you don't learn from it. So you yep. just got to make sure that you put it in the memory bank and don't allow it to, to be something that causes you to have the same issue somewhere else down the road. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Critical Oxygen Podcast, where we help you optimize your physiology and maximize your athletic potential. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we're joined by continuing guest host, Aaron Geyser. Aaron, welcome back to the show, man. What up? How's it going? Good, man. It's uh, for, for the viewers, it'll only be a week between our uh, our conversations and everything, but it always seems, or but him and I took a week off. So, uh, you know, it, it seems like a, lo- a long time, you know, since we've, we've last talked. And uh, speaking of that, in that long time, um, <laughs> you, you, you went off and you, you crushed uh, the Augusta 70.3, the half Ironman. So uh, I'd love to get your, uh, you know, kind of like race recap, like how'd it go? What were you, you know, kind of thinking, what were you nervous about? And, uh, you know, what were the positives that came out of it? Yeah, it, it was a really good really good race they made some adjustments to the course that that weren't there in the past years i I, for anybody that's familiar with that race they the bike course goes over or used to go over a number of active railroad tracks and last year in 2022's race there was actually a train that crossed at one point like late later in the age group portion of the race and caused individuals to lose like 30 minutes for some, like depending wow. on when they got there and like led up to the train, there was individuals that lost 30 minutes on their time. And I, I feel like in, they listened to the athletes in this sense and made the adjustments to take us away from that part of town. Mm-hmm. We did still go over to inactive railroad tracks, but Again, inactive, you weren't going to have a train coming through and stopping anybody at that. It did make some adjustments to the course that, that I can go into a little bit of detail later. But as far as um, travel down for a Sunday race on Wednesday, um, did a normal, like, Got a good, or I wouldn't say a good night's sleep. I didn't sleep well one night while I was there, but got a <laughs> got a night of sleep yeah, and yeah. did a normal amount of training on Thursday, Friday, and then just kind of some shakeout work on Saturday before before the race. So leading in, I really had one of the better blocks that I've had that I can remember and mm-hmm. was running really well off the bike was just, everything was kind of clipping in, in the right direction. And even since our last conversation, I had a uh, brick workout that went on the follow, like the day after we, we taped our previous, I had a brick session that had like an, uh, it was something stupid where I was averaging 26 miles an hour for an hour and 15 minutes or something, and then got off the bike running six twenties. So, I mean, it was wow. like, I, I really had a good, so the expectations were going into this race fairly high. Yeah. And, uh, the week came, it, it did. I had even in Augusta, we did some course riding and recon on Thursday. We then again had the primer on Friday. Again, these workouts went really, really well. Um, I think one of the things that I kind of talked about or glanced over was I didn't have a good night of sleep while I was there. And I think mm-hmm. that can, the continued work and just everything else, kind of built up a little bit more stress than I would really want to. Yeah. But again, that's not something that I necessarily go into race day and pay too much attention to because if it, it can affect you, it can affect you. So right. it's one of those things where I wasn't paying too, too much attention to it. Um, for some weird reason, I was did a practice swim in the river on Friday later in the day. And I still think maybe I was a little behind on hydration and was probably a little dehydrated. I had some massive hamstring and calf cramps in the swim that hmm. took a little bit of time to get rid of. 
And I woke up on Saturday morning with kind of still feeling, and I was like, oh, gosh, worst possible time for this kind of stuff to yep. pop in. Yep. But again, you don't pay too, too much attention to it. And everything else went according to plan. Starting off on Sunday, woke up, felt pretty good. You know, maybe had four hours of sleep again that <laughs> night. It's when I did my Ironman that was kind of exactly the same thing as like we were staying in a hotel and it was loud. And this is like before Airbnbs, I'm pretty sure. And it was mm -hmm. like loud and I couldn't get the temperature, you know, controlled. And I was just like, my brain was just clicking cause I was so nervous. And you know, that was always something like in the past where I'd be like, Oh crap, I didn't get a good night's sleep. Performance is going to be bad today. And just having that mindset going on to the start line is already setting yourself up for failure. So I love mm -hmm. the fact that you're just like, yeah, and we just don't really pay attention to it because it could affect you or it might not affect you, right? You might have, you might crush it that day. Well, and I think we've all, as endurance athletes, we've all gone into a workout where we've either felt fatigued or didn't have a good night of sleep or a hundred of other reasons that, that could make that workout be bad. But yet when mm -hmm. we get into that workout, we crush it. And, yeah. and it's one of those workouts that you're like, man, if I could like bottle that up and have that particular training day on race day, I'm going to be the happiest person on the planet. Yes. So it's just, I've, I guess I've been, you know, just in your time of exposure to sport, you just recognize that, you know what, I can't put too much into that, that thought. So you mm -hmm. are exactly right there, Phil. It's just, I, I just kind of shake it out of my brain. The one thing I, I walked away, I had an athlete meeting with, with one of my athletes yesterday, I want to say. And he's like, so did you walk away with any other thoughts? And I was like, well, typically like a lot of the races that I've done lately, I've flown to this one I drove to. And I was like, I might actually next time think about taking my own pillow and my own, uh, uh, comforter because yes i felt like those were the two things that really caused the nights of sleep that that were it wasn't because yeah. i was thinking it just i was either too hot when i was under the covers or i'd flip the covers off and it was just too cold and right. then also that like that slight millimeters like difference in where your pillow head height is yes can really cause a, a big effect so yeah i was like you know what that's probably one thing. And when I drive to a, another race, that might be something that I'll throw in the back of the car just because it's one less factor I can, I can worry about. Yeah, no, I know it's a, uh, what, what comes to mind when you're talking about this is kind of an internal versus external locus of control. And for those of you, those of you who aren't familiar with that is this idea that, um, you know, you ask your question, what can I control and what can't I control? an internal locus of control focuses on all those things that you can control. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it's so funny. You say that about the pillow, because the biggest thing that I've noticed when I travel, like say for interviews, for work, for races, anything like that, if I bring my pillow, I actually sleep way better. So, and my fiance gives me so much crap about it. Now when I'm like putting my, you know, nice tempur pillow into my, you know, carry on bag and stuff like that. She's like, <laughs> you always bring that. And it just takes up so much space. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. It compresses down and I'll be able to get it into the overhead bin and it helps me sleep better. And you will like me a lot more if I sleep better and I'm not grumpy. So <laughs> I, it's like pretty much, that's like the last thing I pack. I just put it on top of everything, just mush it down. And then there we go. <laughs> You, you can refer back to this podcast. <laughs> yep. This, this one episode, you got to listen to this guy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's the title. That's the title of the, of the episode, why you should bring your pillow to your iron man. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that would, that would be one, one thing that I walked away with and then maybe I might have to take your cheat code to life there when I do travel and, and stuff yeah. it in, in, in my bag. Yep. But, uh, yeah, but Sunday came, it, um, I had a really, really good swim. I think I was out of the water in 25 minutes, which I, I spent a little bit of time after St. George, I was super, super frustrated with my swim there. And I felt like in the last like three or four events, I was taking some big steps backwards and I, uh, 
reached out to one of my fellow coaches at Endure IQ, Merla, and she, we got some video. We both went over it. Then I just spent the last probably three, four months really, really re-coaching my swim form and a lot of the things that I was working on in the pool and really did that for a good, I guess, overall it was four months, but three months and then really in the last month started to build volume and started to do more kind of endurance and speed work and threshold work in the last month. Mm-hmm. And it, it really showed that that work did translate really, really well on race day. And I yeah. felt like from, from what I was able and capable of, that was, it, it was shown at that race and in that river. And it wasn't one of those things where, yeah, we did have current. Yeah. I got benefit from that, but that showed more in the time, but where I walked out and got out of the water within the entire field and especially my division showed that that's where there was a heck of a lot of improvement in that particular side of things. And that that's one thing that I walked away really, really proud of because that was something that I, back in May, I was frustrated as heck. I I, Mm -hmm. I walked away, said this needs to fix and did. So walked away really, really pleased with that, with that piece. Um, Bike came in. I, uh, Swiss side got me a new pair of wheels. So I was running on an 80 mil front disc on the back. I was super, super arrow. Also had their, um, calf sleeves on. So I was able to save a little bit of time there. Mm-hmm. At some point, I think I probably either got a little lazy within that aerodynamics kind of in the 40 to 46 mile range, but at that point had a, had an individual pass me. And then that kind of sparked me to really finish really, really strong. Mm-hmm. I felt like there was probably a couple of minutes left on the table on the bike, but got off in 220 there. So another kind of good leg of that and coming in, heard my wife say, you're sitting third and I forget what it was to second. And I said, all right. So I got into transition, got my shoes on and looking down, I probably did not tie my left shoe tight enough and uh, got out of T2, got moving, saw my wife again, who gave me kind of the same update, but she was like, also, you got, you got this behind you. They are coming out. So you, you gotta, you gotta put a little bit of time in if you want to. So I got up, um, I want to say first mile split was like 145. Second one was, or I'm sorry, one, 645. 145, you set, a, you set the world record. <laughs> I, I, was, I was driving a car at that point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you were still on your bike. <laughs> exactly. And everybody else was running. I was just, I was riding through. But I got off and it was 645 the first and then 640 on the second. And in that timeline, I started to feel that left shoe where I didn't tighten it up a little bit in the uh, arch. I was just getting a little bit too much contact between my foot would kind of sink off of the arch and then sink back down. And, And I was starting to, at that point, feel that there was a blister that was starting to develop. And right around mile three, it was full on, like I could feel almost that oceanic, like wave oh. feeling as you were you were stepping, and that that did that changed my gait quite a bit, and right. I started to hemorrhage a little bit of time at that point, and I think the biggest like the changes that they made on the run course was you ran on the river walk a little bit more, which was really nice, and you started in downtown Augusta, but the problem with that is you then made it back to the river walk and they sent you out into the middle of nothing. So you were running along the river, but you were going away from all the fans. You were going away from downtown. And in previous years, you spent a little bit more time 
in the downtown structure. So you had consistent people all along the roads and you had, you, you just had people, whether they were cheering, whatever, whatever, there was just more people around mm-hmm. here. You went out into the middle of nowhere and that's kind of where I mentally, it got a lot more difficult because it was right around mile four and a half, five, you're running out and you're like, man, I'm like, this all was alone. Yeah. You're in, with where I was in the race, there wasn't a ton of people on the course. So it's not like I was just passing or running into people along that way. It was, mm-hmm. I really, like I had worked myself up into the female pro uh, group. And I, those, I, like I saw a couple of people, but for the most part, it was just empty. Like there was not a whole lot of people out in the course and you're just out in the middle of nowhere, no fan support. I think they're they're at the very, very end of that. There was an aid station. So you got a little bit of like connection with people at that point. But the the blister was causing so much kind of discomfort and you were out in the middle of nowhere. It was like your mind, at least my mind started to kind of waver into that. This sucks. This is this is just awful. But just continued to push forward. The times on the run at that point were definitely not what I wanted them to be, and they were pretty far off of what I wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. But as you're coming back, you're getting back into town. You start to feed off of, uh, start to feed off some things. And one of my athletes that was set up to have a phenomenal day, but had a flat tire early on in the bike. Uh had made it back to the downtown area because he was already out of the race at that point. And he, uh, he came in started running by me probably in the last couple of miles, giving me updates. And that really just kind of forced me to push through and, and finish as strong as I could. Uh, you know, Run was about eight minutes slower than I wanted to, but I was able to at least hold off some competitors and ended up, mm-hmm. you know, getting in in the eyes of Ironman. They do a five person podium, so oh, sweet. made myself on the podium. So at least walked away with with some some iron on the day, and also mm-hmm. I, I got my ticket to Worlds for twenty twenty four in New Congrats. Zealand. So I walked away. Frustrated with the time, but proud of what I did by working through and not stopping when things were super, super uncomfortable and the foot was just feeling rough. You saw the picture of it, Phil, and it was oh, it was yeah. a pretty gnarly foot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, we will not share the picture uh, for those of you watching on YouTube. But yeah, it's uh, it was a pretty brutal, pretty brutal blister. I can't even like you know, as you describe, you know, you start feeling that like ocean, ocean feeling, right. You know, it's like, Oh, there's not supposed to be liquid in your arch. Right. And, (laughs) and then, and then on top of it, you know, it's like, like, I think, I think one of the hardest things is having to leave, you know, an area where you're getting cheered on and have like kind of that connection with people. So you can distract your mind a little bit, because at this point, what you'd been racing for, uh, you know, almost four hours and, maybe a little bit less like 345 or something like that but you're going out and then it's just like nothing and then on top of that your your foot's hurting and it is amazing how much or how slow time can go when you have when you're in a lot of pain mm-hmm. like like i was i was just doing like a, a moderately hard workout today and like the last you know like three minutes of it i kind of pushed pretty hard and i was just like man this three minutes is like it feel, feels like 10 minutes to an hour let alone you know you're running in the middle of nowhere with nobody with your foot hurting and every step is you know potentially making it worse right you know it's like if you've ever ran with a blister like people you know it's like it's it it burns it stings it's uncomfortable like all the time my question is is do you not wear socks when you I do? I, I, oh, you do. I'm one of those individuals that I, I can't even imagine cycling or running without, without socks. So yeah. I, I 100% have socks on. I just, the only thing that makes sense to me, and 
as we've talked about, I did go through an injury last year, and it, I mean, part of that is my arches fall a little bit more mm. in each step. But I really, the only thing that I can really walk away with as any type of reason behind it is I looked and that shoe was just loosely loosely tied and I didn't loosely tie the other foot. I, I just have to imagine that there was just a little bit more movement and mm-hmm. due to the heat, due to me trying to cool myself down, dropping water that, you know, yeah. it just ended up next thing, you know, there's just a lot of great deal of friction in that shoe yeah. and in that arch from all that movement. And it's just a recipe for disaster, and that's just kind of what ended up happening to the foot. It, it, yeah, it happens, you know, and it's just one of those things where, all right, you you put it on. It's it's only a mistake if you don't learn from it. So you yep. just got to make sure that you put it in the memory bank and don't allow it to to be something that causes you to have the same issue somewhere else down the road. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree with that, and it's it that's that's the challenge with with ironmans half ironmans those longer races is that you have to get so many things right in order for your race to you know to have like that that perfect race right and it could be one thing where you don't tie your shoe you know quite as tight as you probably should have and then you drop a little bit too much water on and then you get a blister right and then you bleed eight minutes which i mean you, you know your your time is still sub 430 which is incredible i i'm gonna tell you this i know you're hard on yourself but like you know that's that's awesome man when i when i woke up and i was like watching it because like so okay so i texted aaron i think on friday thursday friday and saturday and told him good luck with your race tomorrow because i kept forgetting that his race is on sunday (laughs) so 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 i kept telling him good luck on his race and then i and then i almost forgot that he was even racing on sunday so (laughs) dude it was so then, so then I opened it up. I was like, oh shit, Aaron's like Aaron's racing right now. So I like opened up like, you know, the athlete tracker and stuff. And I think you were probably 10 minutes from the finish line. And I texted you cause I was like, oh dude, you're crushing it. You know, like that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, like, like, like nice job. And you know, it's like, I, I know you're, you're hard on yourself and you're like, I, I wish it could have gone better. But I mean, that's, uh, is I, I am, I just think it's so impressive, right? You know, you 25 minute swim, two hour, 20 minute bike. And then, you know, uh, a, mar- a half marathon that was a little slower than you wanted it to be, but you know, still only eight minutes. What was your, what was your final half marathon time? It had to be around one thirty, right? One thirty four was yeah. what, what it was. So it, uh, little above seven minute average average in that. So yeah, but it, it's it's amazing at how competitive this sport has gotten over the last couple of years. But mm-hmm. at forty four was my last like competition in that particular division, and it's still you you got to look at it and say four twenty eight. It's it's I mean it's definitely something to be proud of. It but mm-hmm. you as a competitor you're always going to man there there's that little bit of time out there left i know <laughs> uh, well and that is why you're on the podcast cuz we're always talking about optimizing you know your your training and doing that sort of stuff going forward so i guess i guess yeah so you qualified for worlds next year uh in new zealand which will be sweet hopefully they run you through you know where where they filmed like the lord of the rings or something so you can feel a little more epic when you're, when you're doing your race um What's uh, in terms of training and stuff going forward, right? You know, optimization, all of that. What sort of things do you, you know, are you going to adopt or are you going to continue, you know, with like your training since you had such good success with this? So middle of this week, it, it was more of kind of putting some thought to paper of what and how I wanted next year to kind of start to shape it up. It with, Northern Hemisphere tra- traveling over to the Southern Hemisphere, it, we got a little bit of kind of change in the season for us mm-hmm. because if we went over when they normally hold Ironman Half Worlds, typically kind of falls in between August to maybe I know they've had one in October. With the difference in Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere, the um, 
traditionally Iron Man 70.3 is held in August, September, maybe as late as October. This one's going to be in December. So it's actually the middle point of December because everything's got to start to warm it up over over in New Zealand. So by that time, you're at least it will probably 99% be a wetsuit swim and just kind of be fairly cold for most of the day at that point, just because it's kind of their early spring at that point. Okay. And uh, actually, I guess it's more late, later spring at that point, but still, still can be chilly. And at that, it's, I don't want to, when I start to shape it up 2024, I don't want to have a race season that goes from January or even start to train from December to December because that's just right. a long, long season. So I started to look at things and how they start to align and maybe look at, you know, starting the season off with, I have a couple of athletes that are going to be getting ready for Oceanside, especially in that pro mm -hmm. field. So I'm going to make sure that that's a, a portion of my focus is making sure that they're fully ready. I have planned training camp with them to uh, get them prepared with some of the hills and be prepared for that uh, Ironman Oceanside course. And then Ender IQ is now having a uh, training camp out in Tucson in April. So with that, I'm kind of looking at maybe starting the season race-wise kind of in that June, July area. Mm -hmm. So really what I'm kind of looking towards the back half of this year is get back into some strength training, maybe start a little bit of additional speed work on the run just to kind of add some, just a different layer there at this point. Cause physically I'm able to tolerate that stress. So might as well put it in while I can still do it and, and gain some, some benefits from it. Bike will predominantly just be a lot of aerobic work at this point. Mm -hmm. Not, I do lead my one Zwift ride for the Southern hemisphere. So I will have like one race effort. That's an hour long for, for that group. But for the most part, it, it will be a lot of endurance work probably towards the back half of October, first part of November, I'll start to then add in a little bit of VO2 max work on the bike just to start to sharpen that piece of the puzzle mm -hmm. for January, then get back into a, a general base and start to lead things to that outlook of June and July. Mm -hmm. Cool. Hopefully yeah. that answered your question. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, it's, like it's so far off, you know, De December of 2024. Right. You know, so it's like, yeah. it's, it's so hard to kind of, you know, plan that far out, but you know, so you're, you're aiming, I just want to reiterate, you're aiming for, you know, another race, maybe June, July of next year, or like kind of starting your race season, June, July of next year, and then doing a couple races, maybe before worlds. That is correct. And I even had the conversation with both Dan and my wife about maybe looking at adding a full to this would be my, my first in a couple of years since really that I had the injury at Ironman Texas in 2022. Mm -hmm. But I was I'm flirting with the idea of racing Ironman California 2024 in October Cause I just feel like one that would give me a hell of a lot of like a fitness going into that point. And then I could really sharpen November and the first portion of December leading into that race and be really, really sharp. So that's kind of one thing that I have been flirting with the idea of it's just a matter of that race is in three weeks i'll mm -hmm. be out there for athlete support so as long as they continue to hold it that might be something that i'm looking at doing next year yeah with the idea that going doing an iron man is going to provide you with a little bit more of that like strength endurance stuff like if we're using like the terms that i guess like the 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 
track coaches would be using like more Mm -hmm. strength. And then, you know, after that, then you start to sharpen up a little bit more, get a little bit more race specific with, you know, faster and still be like a little bit more sort towards the threshold side of things. Right. You're not going to be doing a a boatload of VO two max work, but like at that point wouldn't be doing any. Yeah. 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 But it's more, it's like, it's like you go from, you know, your, your, threshold race pace days being like the, the Ironman stuff, which is obviously going to be like uh, slower compared to, you know, like the half Ironman, which is then going to be, you know, faster compared to. So, and then it's just a base that you'd be, be able to build on. Right. I think uh, Peter Atia, and we've talked about this, right. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like the, the base is uh, the base of your, your pyramid and then you sharpen it. And he says you sharpen it with VO2 max, but you can also sharpen that with, with threshold training and everything too. Well, we believe that specificity kind of fits yes. that ideally. And Peter's right in that you can 100% sharpen it with VO2 max, but I feel like, I mean, let's be honest, we're holding power for two, two hours and 15, two hours and 20 minutes, 30 second, maybe one minute efforts aren't going to do a whole heck of a lot of, being able to really allow you to build the the stamina to hold any kind of true race pace power at right. that point for longer periods of time. So it, it, it would be from a mitochondrial density, it would be the time to really start to kind of spark up much more specific work. It's just going to be a, it's going to take the shape of a different specific, uh, specificity at that point. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's, what I've probably talked about, you know, on this podcast, I think we're, we're 11 episodes in. I think I've said it every single episode, but it's like, you know, training has to be specific. You have to be consistent and you have to progressively overload it. Right. You know, it's like those three things are really the biggest things that you need to focus on. And then from there, you can kind of start to put in your, uh, you know, different styles of training. Right. And, this is something I just thought about. I just posted something on Instagram today that was like, oh, are there really three thresholds that you need to measure, you know, to do your zones? And with the idea that the first threshold is kind of like fat max, second threshold is like your, your you know, tipping point between sustainable and unsustainable. And then your third threshold is really VO2 max. Mm-hmm. And that race specificity, that specificity of training, when it gets close to a race, you need to be doing threshold training, but it needs to be towards whatever threshold is going to be most determinant of whatever race you're doing. So if you're doing a 1500, then VO2 max work is actually probably closer to what you want to do. And that's what you see with a lot of uh, track athletes and cross country athletes and, and people like that is the closer they get to um, you know, championship season, the shorter those intervals are going to be the closer they're going to be VO2 max, maybe a little bit higher than that because they're trying to sharpen to something that is going to be to a race that you're going to have to try to sustain something close, if not at VO2 max for as long as possible. The next step back would then be threshold two, you know, so for your half Ironmans, uh, really anything that's probably, you know, two to uh, maybe like two hours, maybe a little bit less where you're kind of racing to second threshold, then you're going to be doing a, a boatload of threshold work, you know, and I say threshold work as, as second threshold work. Right. Then like when you get into like the ultras, the Ironman stuff, especially if you're like, you're a little bit slower of an Ironman athlete or slower of an ultra athlete, that's when you start to do, you know, like a lot of work at like that fat max, maybe a little bit, you know, past that, right. Is because that's going to be the, the sustainable pace that you actually have for whatever race it is. So it's just, it's just a matter of, of specificity and, you know, that threshold training is going to change depending on what your, you know, what your race actually is. But it's, I, I think often when, when we talk FTP and threshold, it, it often gets kind of paired into, well, it's the, what you can do in an hour. But I think with the way that you just described it, Phil, it opens up a little bit more flexibility for it to take a shape of, the specificity of what you're doing, because Mm -hmm. technically, even if whether you're holding that power for an hour, you're holding that power for two hours, that that's the threshold for that particular effort. And it's, it's allowing that to take the shape. And then what you want to try to accomplish is becoming 
if it's not in that VO2 max area, you want it to become more comfortable. So it's exposing yourself in that to an extent that you can sustain it for that length of time that you need to sustain it, but also make it more tolerable and a lot more kind of the the uncomfortable comfort that, that mm-hmm. we come accustomed to within racing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I can't remember who, who kind of introduced that term to me of, you know, your, your functional threshold power for whatever race it is, is whatever power you can hold for the given time domain that it actually is. I think it was, mm-hmm. I think it was Olav, the uh, Olav Alexander blue, the the coach of the Norwegians. He said it, I think I actually, I think it was at Moxie, the Moxie coaches meeting in Kona last year. Cause he said something along those lines where it was like, he was like, yeah, the, the, the threshold power that you have for whatever race it is, is however long you can maintain that power, you know, for say six hours, whatever it is like on, on the bike or the run or whatever. So, um, I think that's something that is valuable because then what you want to do is you can play around with that. For example, if you can maintain a, a power output of, you know, 250 Watts for two hours, and you do like a, like a, a ride slash test for that, you're training for an Ironman or a half Ironman or something, then your goal is to make it make 250 either feel super comfortable or move that maintainable power for two hours, two plus hours up to 260, 270, whatever. Um, and I, it gives a little bit more granularity in terms of training as opposed to just being like, yep, got to do threshold training. Um, even though, most people aren't really racing for 30 minutes unless you're a really good 10 K runner, right? Like right. It, it's, it's not a very normal race and 30 minute, 30 to 60 minutes is really what we could maintain ideally in a fully recovered situation for things like FTP or critical powers, even lower. Like some people, when they test it, it's like 24 hours uh, or 24 hours, 24 minutes. Um, so, so maybe that's something that people, you know, could take, take out of this discussion is threshold power actually should be variable and it should be as sport specific as possible. If you're doing that fast race, it's closer to VO two max. If you're doing, uh, you know, longer races, it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's closer to whatever time you can just maintain for, or whatever power you can maintain for whatever time you are expecting to be racing for. Well, that's uh, one of the things in, Probably the last 18 months for me, I've really heavily moved away from the FTP on the bike to be kind of that Swiss army knife. Cause I don't, I don't think that that's the case because the one number doesn't translate to one individual's VO2 max. It might not translate to threshold. It might not translate to their sustainable tempo and it might not necessarily correlate with their aerobic or vt1 mm-hmm. so it's i and it's it's funny that you mentioned that because the more and more that i work with just all different types of athletes you have people that are really really sharp at one particular skill level or another and not relying on that one number i find is moving the needle for more athletes mm it might take me a little bit more time to say, okay, well, we need to go into a VO2 max workout. We're going to go with this particular target. Here's what we're looking for. If we do not experience this, we need to increase the bias. If we feel this, we need to decrease the bias. So there's a little bit of play there that the athlete needs to be perceptive in that moment and recognize okay, this is not what Aaron said it should feel like. I need to go and search for what that that level is. Mm-hmm. And that's what has really allowed a lot of my athletes to, to move the needle in their skill set there is because they recognize what they're looking for. They're not just relying on that number that the FTP gave us. And it sure as hell is not being translated across all those different style of workouts, whether it be bike, run, or swim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Something I've been talking a lot about is, you know, using, you know, your, your physiology and, and doing a true zone, you know, test. But what I want to tell people right now is that when you determine your zones, those are just giving you estimates of where different physiological thresholds are really occurring. And that 
is going to change day to day based on your fatigue, based on, you know, your, your nutrient recovery, based on your sleep, right. You know, based on your hydration status, all of this stuff. So, you know, this is where, this is, you know, the difference between really, really good coaches and coaches who are a little bit more kind of mediocre is the really good coaches are going to tell you, okay, this is what you're aiming for today. And then they're going to give you in, in parentheses, but it could fluctuate from here to here. And this is what you should be feeling because every day is not going to be a perfect, you know, physiological testing day. Um, and I, I think, I think people, I think people could gain a lot from doing testing and that's why I'm pushing it so hard, but mm -hmm. I don't want people to get so wrapped up in like their numbers that when something happens where it doesn't like your numbers don't correlate with the physiology testing that you're actually doing like that, your brain just doesn't, you know, kind of like go to mush. You say, okay, well, today I'm not as recovered as I thought I was going to be. This is feeling way harder. Like I'm just breathing super hard. This is not sustainable. My heart rate keeps climbing other things like that. So I need to back it off in order to actually target the physiological adaptations that we're truly targeting on that given day. Um, and, and that's where, you know, that's, that's the art of coaching, right? Science will tell us, you know, it's like, well, the best way to improve your VO2 max is doing, you know, four minutes on four minutes off. And you do that for six weeks and you do it every other day. And that's, you know, the best way to improve your VO2 max. But the art of coaching will tell you is like, well, on that first day, you're probably going to be able to hit your targets. But then on that second day, and no coach would ever prescribe of like, well, maybe, maybe some, if you do some block, you know, block periodization, but right. you're not going to do like a VO two max workout every other day for six weeks. Like if you have a coach that does that run away and, and find a better coach, um, <laughs> um, but a, a good coach, if they were to do something like that would say, okay, well, we're doing a VO two max. You're probably going to hit your targets on this day. You're going to come back in two days and you're probably going to still feel tired because this is a hard, hard, these are hard, hard efforts that you're doing. So you're going to have to modulate down that power and go by RPE, go by, you know, how you're feeling, go by how your legs are feeling, go by how your heart rate is changing and, and look at all those variables at the same time to then modulate that effort. Um, so, so yes, I would say the, the whole, the bottom line of that big rant is that thresholds give us an estimate for, for where and how we do things. And then really the value of a good coach is to be able to, to pinpoint that on a day-to-day -day basis based on what you're telling them, based on the data that they're seeing and then going from there. Um, and that's actually a perfect kind of juxtaposition to, so Aaron, what I'm kind of gathering is that, you know, you guys, you look at a lot of data, you're very data-driven you're looking at that data and you're trying to figure out where somebody's thresholds are, where someone's, you know, like max is, but do you guys ever do like, like physiological testing or is it more like we're just iterating on certain workouts and we're just kind of playing with the numbers from there? Yes, we like to do testing. Now the, the complication with that is that, we coach on an international basis, so we aren't necessarily in, and in some cases we're not in the same country, but we're definitely not in the same city or state a lot of the times as many of our athletes. And we also have to kind of rely on the resources that are in that area. And depending on where you are, you might not have quality testers or quality instruments to get quality testing. So that we have to play that into, into the landscape of if we want to get that testing or not, because as you and I both know, it does cost a decent amount of money to get that testing done. And the last thing that I want to do is spend resources of an athlete that aren't going to give us anything that, that moves the needle or provides us with quality data that we can make good decisions on. So, yes, but we have to like I have sent athletes across the country in the U.S. to other places to get testing done, to get it done by somebody that I trust. Right. Not everybody has those resources to do that as well. So it's it, it's a complicated question in that case, Phil. But yes, I, I if we can get that information, I want to get it. But it's got to be done by somebody that I know is going to provide quality results. And 
if again there's also that pers- like professional responsibility from the test taker to share any data with me that either came out a little bit wonky or needed some explanation. So it just kind of each scenario is going to provide a little bit of a different answer to that, mm-hmm. but at its foundation, yes, we, we, we all like to get that kind of data because it allows us to make smarter decisions, but it's again, not going to be the end all be all. It's not that silver bullet. That's going to answer all questions. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a perfect PhD answer where you're like, well, it depends. Um, which is no, that, that's like, that's exactly what I would expect out of a good coach, right? Is you, you say, okay, well, it helps us make more informed decisions, but it's not the end all be all. And, but it gets you, it gets you just a little bit better, a little bit more optimal, right? Doing those tests and making sure that it is somebody who is like, who does have uh, experience in doing these types of tests because they're like, it's because the barrier to entry is so high. Most of the time you're not going to run into people who don't really know what they're doing, but I have met people who don't really know what they're doing, who, you know, thought it would be a good idea to do this sort of testing. And then they don't, then they don't even know how to, you know, run, run a test or, uh, you know, maybe their equipment isn't functioning as well as, you would hope. And, you know, they're they're not doing like kind of those checks in the background for, you know, like quality assurance and all that. Um, and, and that is one of the challenges, right? Like, you know, it still stands. The gold standard is to go into, you know, a university setting where they have the 30 to $50,000 metabolic carts that have been calibrated correctly that, uh, you know, hopefully they're doing testing regularly with these sort of things. They get you on, you know, a bike or a treadmill, depending on what you're, you're trying to focus on. And then they give you a test that is actually representative of your fitness rather than, uh, you know, a test that's, uh, maybe suboptimal in a sense. Um, so yeah. And, and, and to that, Phil, I also like, we, we've talked about specificity a number of times and I still, this is relevant to it, it's, I, I don't want you to give me numbers for a track sprinter for an endurance athlete. It's mm-hmm. we're more reliant on substrate utilization and fat max in that case where the track athlete is really probably pivoting on some VO2 max measures and some of the other ne- not necessarily metabolic measurements in that case. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, we want to also have the administer of the test understand what athlete and what you're trying to look at in that case and what, information is more vital than this information. Mm -hmm. And these, these areas are just as important as anything else. So a good questionnaire. And like I said, if, if an administrator of the test is not even willing to talk to an outside party, that's one red flag to me because Mm -hmm. one, I don't necessarily know what your testing protocol is, but two, if you're not willing to at least listen or to have a conversation, like most scientists, especially exercise, like, we like to talk to other like-minded individuals. Yes. But if you find that individual that doesn't, you're like, eh, I don't know if I'm sending any an like, athlete to that individual. Yeah, like what's it? What's what are they hiding? You know, sort of right. deal. Or you know, like are they? Yeah, I I totally agree, and that's something. As I've started to think about doing more testing, is I, I want to make it a conversation between me and the athlete and me and the coach of that athlete, because for the most part, I'm probably not going to be coaching that athlete, but I want to make sure that we're all on board with like the interpretation of the data, how to use the data. Um, you know, again, is it, it it's, it's more something that drives better decision-making versus being the end all be all. And, you know, but at the end of the day, for the, for most people, at least most people that I know, are not doing physiological testing. And then they're just hoping that, you know, their zoning is correct and, and using other things like, like heart rate max, right? They do 220 minus your age. And then you're like, okay, well, uh, you know, my zones are a hundred percent of that 90% of that 80, 70, 
60, 50. Right. And it's, it's all about like optimization of, you know, training is all about just moving the needle just a little bit better. Each time you, you try to do some testing each time you do a workout, all of that. And, you know, we're talking about when we're dealing with athletes who are kind of on that, you know, like that knife edge of either podium finishing well, or, you know, finishing like, you know, below the top 10, that's where it, it is super important to start to know, you know, like substrate utilization and, you know, exactly where that fat max is occurring and, you know, optimizing the training protocol because you, it doesn't make sense to do a step test where it's a one minute step for these individuals that are going to go do an Ironman or something like that. Cause you're probably going to miss or misidentify first and second threshold, which we know first threshold is going to be super important because that's going to tell us where we're doing most of our easy training. Then second threshold is going to tell us kind of where, or the estimation of, of where the sustainable pace is going to be and then dial it back just a little bit. So yeah, there's rungs to it, but. Well, and especially, I mean, we could, we could go around this circle forever. It's just a, it's it's again a piece of the puzzle and mm -hmm. i feel like it's vital for certain aspects but again if you're not going to utilize the information don't don't waste waste your time or don't waste your money yeah, yeah. no yes exactly it's like no no amount of data is useful if you're not going to use it right so so we'll leave it we'll leave you guys with that and I'm sure Aaron and I will come back because that's something I do want to talk to you about is kind of like how you feel, how uh, Endure IQ really thinks about um, substrate utilization and other things like that. So uh, for for those of you who have more questions on you know this sort of stuff, leave a comment down below. If you're on YouTube, you can reach out to me at Critical02 on Instagram. You can reach out to Aaron at Try A Geyser on Instagram as well. Uh, if you if you can't find his account or something like that, you can direct them at me and I will forward them to him. Um, and maybe we'll discuss your questions on the show. Um, and until next time, we'll catch you guys later.